Bookcraft is pleased to present Youth in Nazareth by Dr. Truman G. Madsen from the series Jesus of Nazareth. We go now with Mary and Joseph back to their home in Nazareth. Some call these years the lost years in the life of Jesus. The scripture gives us one verse. It says the child grew, that he waxed strong in favor with man and God. And that's it. But we have other glimpses from authoritative sources. We know, first of all, through an addition in the Joseph Smith translation, three things. That he was subject to his father, and that's with a small f, suggesting that he was obedient and responsive to Joseph. We know, second, that he was in the trade of carpentry, although the Greek language for this suggests that it was not simply fine work for interiors, but that it may have been construction work also. In any case, he worked with his hands and alongside Joseph. But then third, an interesting line has been added that, quote, he needed not that any man should teach him. Now clearly, we know from our own sources, Jesus grew and learned in processes parallel to those of all men. He surely, for example, would have learned the language of his parents, and that would have included Hebrew, but more likely Aramaic. And some recent scholars think he also picked up some Greek. Surely he would have had to learn the elementary lessons that went with schooling of the time, and that would have meant early exposure to religious studies and exposure to the Torah, the Jewish word for the first books of the Pentateuch, but also for the prophets and the wisdom literature. So in that sense, of course, he needed to be taught. But the context suggests that he did not need to be taught by anyone concerning his own mission, that his self-awareness or his messianic consciousness increased with the passing of the years. Now, in fancy, I have imagined him on an afternoon in Nazareth on the hillside, and Nazareth is itself just a combination of hills, and reading. It would not have been a book, for books had not yet been printed. It might have been a scroll. But in my imagination, it was a section of Isaiah. And as he's reading along in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, he comes on a verse that speaks of one yet to come and says, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Jesus, still only a young man, may have said to himself, that is about me. Such a moment of recognition may have come when he actually recognized his own patriarchal blessing. For so it was. But mind-boggling as that awareness and the burdens that it imposed must have been, there is something else 
the time came when he would realize that the inspiration that was given to Isaiah all those centuries before to write of the forthcoming Messiah came from on high and even, it's possible, from him. For, in our understanding, Jesus would have known and honored Isaiah as Isaiah would have honored and known him. The late President Joseph F. Smith, in speaking of the youth of Jesus and in speaking of his self-awareness, in a very classic passage called Spirit Memories, says this, pertaining to the preexistence, he surely knew who he was before he entered mortality. He would have known beforehand the mission that he had been committed to fulfill. We read that he solemnly and voluntarily gave himself in the council in heaven and that the plan of salvation was made in his presence and that we all sanctioned it. He would have known at least some of those with whom he would live while in mortality, his parents, his forebears. He would have known those who were to be called as his disciples and apostles and would have anticipated the main events in his life. And then said Joseph F. Smith, if he knew, so did we. And in a measure, therefore, there is locked within us, but far more profoundly in him, a burgeoning awareness. And we have glimpses of our own potential early on, reinforced by the spirit of prophecy and revelation in those who surround us. So Jesus grew, as the scriptures say, and grew in both wisdom and knowledge, and grew into the likeness of the mission which he had been given. All this came home to me in a vivid way as I stood once on the shores of the Galilee and contemplated the question of how it was that Jesus could stand, look out to two fishermen, call them by name, and say, follow me. And, says the record, they straightway left their nets. I was standing there with President Hugh B. Brown and expressed amazement at this sudden response and explained, as I supposed, that probably the record has been radically telescoped and that likely Jesus would have had to know and teach and work with these men for a long period before that occurred and made a similar reference to the experience of John who apparently instantly recognized Jesus for whom he was. President Brown smiled and then told the following incident from his own life. He said, I once was walking down a street in Salt Lake and saw in the distance on the sidewalk another man. He looked familiar to me, though I did not know him. And that impression of familiarity grew as we approached. When we were side by side, it was almost like an electric shock. Each of us took a few steps, stopped, turned around and stared at the other, and then went our way. Years later, 
I learned that that was Orson F. Whitney, who became a member of the Council of the Twelve, as I became a member of the Council of the Twelve. So his explanation for such familiarity was rooted in pre-mortal considerations. And it was Orson F. Whitney, of whom he spoke, who wrote the following words. One day, he says, on the subject of spirit memories, I was led to indulge these reflections. Why are we drawn toward certain persons, and they to us, as if we had always known each other? Is it a fact we always have? Is there something, after all, in the abused term affinity? And is this the basis of its claim? We believe that the ties formed in this life will continue in the life to come. Why not believe that we had similar ties before we came, and that some of them, at least, have been resumed in this state of existence? After meeting someone whom I had never met before on earth, I have wondered, why does that person's face seem so familiar? More than once, on hearing a noble sentiment expressed, though unable to recall that I'd ever heard it until then, I found myself in sympathy with it and felt as if I had always known it. The same is true of some strains of music. They are like echoes of eternity. I do not assert pre-acquaintance in all such cases, but as one thought suggests another, these queries arise in the mind. When it comes to the gospel, I feel more positive. Why did the Savior say, My sheep know my voice? Did a sheep ever know the voice of a shepherd it had never heard before? They who love the truth and to whom it most strongly appeals, were they not acquainted with it in a previous life? I think so. I believe we knew the gospel before we came here, and that is what gives to it a familiar sound. And so, in another apostle's words, by the power of the Spirit, through obedience, we often catch a spark from the awakened memories of the immortal soul, which lights up our whole being as with the glory of our former home. Surely, if these experiences occur to men, they occurred to the growing teenage Jesus Christ. A word now about the setting of the small community known as Nazareth. The question was asked later, usually contemptuously, is this not a Nazarene or a man from Nazareth? In Jewish tradition to this day, a Christian is called a Nazarote. Jesus grew in a small community, but it was in a valley between surrounding hills, and on the top of those today, one can see the same landscape that he would have seen in his youth. And as one uh, looks out on a clear day, for example, to the west, he can see almost to the Mediterranean and parts of the eastern extremities of Mount Carmel, 
where Elijah had his contest with the priests of Baal. Looking to the south is the Valley of Jezreel, and on the left or eastern extremity of that, a mound which is called Mount Tavor or Tabor, one of the possible sites of the Mount of Transfiguration. Looking east and northeast, Jesus would have seen the highest mountain in the Middle East, at least in the area now known as Israel. It is known as Mount Hermon and is presently divided among three countries. The only sizable mount on which there is snow and a lasting glacier year-round and is the headwaters, so to speak, the source ultimately of the main water supplies that flow south in three separate streams, become the Jordan eventually, and form the sea known as the Galil, the Galilee. If he looked due north, he could have seen as far as the area now today known as Lebanon. One can assume that these scenes became familiar to him, and it's hard to think that he would not have walked the distances and aspired to climb some of these mounts, and in doing so become conscious of biblical events which had occurred and which were celebrated in both Jewish ceremony and in the narratives and even the legends that were abundant in his time. Going ahead now in time to the incident involving his hometown, which, after he had begun his public ministry, he visited twice. We read from Luke's account of a synagogue experience. By now, Jesus' fame, apparently, had extended widely. For example, Matthew says, all the city, in a given case, was moved, or speaks of great multitudes or says that his reputation extended to all the cities and villages. Uh, but specifically named are three places, Chorazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, or as it was, Kafar Nahum. Now, Capernaum, at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, was for a time the headquarters of Jesus, the home of Peter, and the place of a synagogue where we know he performed an early healing. A paralytic boy was healed in that place. Bethsaida and Chorazim are within a radius of eight to ten miles, Chorazim to the north and Bethsaida to the east. And in them, according to Matthew, Jesus did most of his mighty works. Well, Nazareth is due west of Capernaum and would be less than 15 miles. And if Jesus performed miracles, as he did, in the areas named, surely the word would have traveled in that day back to his hometown. And the evidence of his healings would have been at least on the tongues of those who had been benefited or were witnesses. One of the interesting sequels 
is that when one reads the occasions where Jesus actually pronounces a curse on a given place, the places that are selected are those three. He speaks of each of them as having sunk, as it were, into condemnation and as being less worthy even than Sodom and Gomorrah, which in the traditions became so wicked that they were destroyed, never to be rebuilt, and in one fanciful legend are buried beneath the Dead Sea. In other words, the principle seems to be at work that the greater the light, the greater the condemnation or the cursing. Now, the other community of which Jesus speaks in a condemnatory way is Nazareth. So now we go with him to the synagogue and read the account in Luke. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, that is to say, Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now I interrupt to say that sometimes the pattern was to read an exact assigned section of Torah on each successive Sabbath day and certain other days. And this was an annual calendar so that the entire book, that is the five books of the Pentateuch, were totally read aloud in a given calendar year. It may be that on this occasion this was the appropriate reading, or it may be that Jesus chose to select this passage. It is as follows. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, which incidentally means to preach the Sabbath. He closed the book, he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, said they, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. Now parallel to that are two other verses in other Gospels, which say, First, he did not many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. So Jesus himself was constrained, restricted, limited by the faith of those who surrounded him, or its absence. And then the other passages point to his going from this point to Capernaum, never to return and dwell in his own hometown. Now the sequel to the incident here mentioned in Luke, 
is that the people of the synagogue were so filled with wrath that they thrust him out of the city, took him to a cliff, and attempted to throw him over. But, it says, he passing through the midst of them went his way. This tells us two things. It tells us how powerful the sense of the messianic prophecies was, and it tells us, second, that the attitude toward life and the punishability of what they considered blasphemy was such that they really felt justified in attempting to kill him. Today, the so-called Mount of Precipitation, a higher peak at the southern extremity of the modern city of Nazareth, is pointed out as the exact place where this occurred. Perhaps, perhaps not. But in any case, there was an attempt, one of many, on Jesus' life. During this same period, Jesus learns that the life of John the Baptist is in jeopardy. He has by now been arrested, placed in prison, and through the conspiracy of Herodias is about to be beheaded. The record gives us only two glimpses of his feelings. Indication first that he wept, and indication second that he prayed for and sent in a comforting mode angelic ministrants to John.